Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Double Down WNBA podcast. My name is Eric Nemchak here alongside Stephen Trinkwald, as always. Hope you all are doing well on this cold and dark November day. And if it's not cold and dark, well, I'm very envious of you. Stephen, what's going on over there? How you doing? I'm doing great, man. Um, we're going to recap some some things we uh, got wrong before the season. Always good to kind of take stock of where we missed here. So I thought it would be a, a fun exercise. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. You know, in case uh, you listeners have not uh, found this out already, uh, Steve and I are both pretty self-deprecating in our sense of humor. And it's uh, it's a good grounding exercise for us. It's, it's, it's fun to look back and say and see where we were wrong. And, you know, that, that helps us as it helps anybody as basketball analysts, I think, to to take stock of what you were wrong about, as you said, and ultimately learn from that experience. So, uh, Stephen, where should we start here? Let's get started uh, with, with your first one. Who, who do you have first? Or, or what do you uh, have first, I should say? In my notes, I have Arike Ogunbowale. What we, were wrong, we were wrong about Arike. And uh, first first things first, I think, um, just to lay out some, some things, not saying Arike is a bad player or anything like that. I think he's a pretty polarizing player in the community. We we're both pretty high on her. that's fair to say. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty diplomatic description up for it. I think we were both pretty high on Enrique's chances heading into her third season. You know, uh, new new coaching staff, new look team. Her skills have been undeniable. Her, her previous two seasons, her first two seasons, uh, but heading into this season, I think we just expected more than what we got. It's been almost eerily consistent year over year for Enrique yes. Gumbawale. You know, when you look at just kind of like the Basketball Reference page, for example, the year over year efficiency you know the points per game the usage even some of the playmaking stuff there's not a lot of um progress in terms of her development as a player nor you know has she had like a down year or anything it's just pretty much she's the same player she was as a rookie uh three seasons ago and that in itself is is disappointing i would say because she showed so much promise as a rookie i think the question for arike has been uh throughout her WNBA career as far as okay she's got the skills she can score the heck out of the basketball can she take that next step and be the best player on a good team, on a contending team? And we haven't seen that. And I think we would go so far as to say, or, or to ask the question, is Agunbawale the best player on her team as it, as it currently stands? And I don't have a lot of confidence in that answer one way or the other. I think I would lean that she's probably not the best player uh, and that she, I, I would say their three best players in Arike, Alicia Gray, and Satu Sable are all kind of really neck and neck. Uh, and, and that none of those players really stand out as like, this is who is definitely impacting winning basketball the most right now. Uh, I think you and I both have our opinions on who will be the, the biggest kind of impact player maybe a couple of years from now in, in Satu Sabali. But all those players, I think, are kind of really in the same neighborhood as players, at least at this moment. And of course, they all have their their own strengths and weaknesses. Arike, you know, hers hers tends to stick out more because it's scoring the basketball. You know, she's always going to be up top of the leaderboards of scoring. Um, there's no doubt about that. But let's 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 run through some of these numbers here. Like you said, Basketball Reference, uh, very very nicely has this very nicely set up on, on the player pages. Um, look at you said they were eerily consistent. Okay, look at her these passing per 36 minutes. These assists, rookie year, 3.6 assists per 37 minutes. Or 36 minutes, sorry. Next year, 3.7. Last year, 3.7. Let's go to the turnovers. 2.3, 2.3, 2.4. That's crazy, Stephen. That, that, that is, like you said, eerily consistent, for better or for worse, you know? And I, I think this just speaks to my initial point is the disappointment for me 
is in that she's more or less the same player that she was when she first came into the WNBA. And for a player of her of her talent and of her stature, that's ultimately what is disappointing to me. Even in her efficiency, you know, it's not literally the same exact number year over year, like in some of those, uh, the passing and the turnover, but, you know, 51% true shooting this year, career 51% true shooter, 46% effective field goal percentage this past season, 45 and a half for her career. You know, her usage maybe is the only thing that really has dropped noticeably and, and not even right 28.8% usage compared to 30 I think her first two seasons yeah it, it's high it's, not astronomical yeah, which is, yeah. okay. <laughs> and there's kind of like some variation within that right like she takes a little bit more threes uh one season I think this season was her highest kind of three-point attempt rate or highest threes per 36 minutes you know some some years she'll get to the basket a little bit more but you just kind of look at, at everything quick it's uh it is disappointing that there hasn't been sort of that leap season um and she almost kind of operates as sort of like a separate entity from like the rest of this Wings team, who I think is otherwise full of pretty decent defenders. They all play a little bit more of not dependent basketball, but um, I think the ball flows a little bit better kind of, uh, you know, sans Arike, not with her off the floor, but just kind of within the system, you know, when it's not her involved in the action. You know, she was only assisted on like 43% of her baskets this season, whereas, you know, the rest of their kind of top scorers, Mabry was just under half of her baskets were assisted. Alicia Gray, 60%, Sobley, 70%, Izzy Harrison, 70%, Kayla Thornton, de- definitely the most dependent of, of the players offensively there, but 77%. And then, you know, of course, the defensive numbers where they were just uh, significantly better with Arike off the floor than they were uh, with Arike on the court at 12 points per 100 possessions better when she was sitting. And only kind of like marginally better offensively, you know, not really driving efficient offense, you know, for herself and others the way we were kind of hoping before this season. And that's a good point. That's that's the, I think the one thing I wanted to address before we move on here. Um, there there are two tendencies. I think Ariku Gunbowale. I'm I'm disappointed in that she still has one is to stop the basketball and take bad shots, which I mean that. Maybe that's just who she is as a player, but you know, you would think heading into year three on, on on a team that's expected to make the playoffs, and like I said, new coaching staff that would be kind of uh, fixed. But I I think that was in fact you know more prevalent than ever, and also on defense, like you mentioned. I mean, she's still a pretty inattentive defender, I would say, and I think those two kind of go hand in hand because because one thing I I like to look for is 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 the bad offense contributing to bad defense? You know, if you're taking bad like bad long twos um, and then not getting back on defense or whatever, that's, you know, there's two ends to the court, but they're, they're both part of the same coin. You know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I hate to uh, continuously pick on one player, but I'm just going to say, like, I, I, w- I had higher expectations for Gwen Bawali at this point in her career. Let's move on to some, I guess, a topic that surprised us or, or that proved us wrong in, in a positive way and not so much as a, a disappointment. And that would be the uh, the offense of the Connecticut Sun. And we've talked about this team at length. And most recently when we discussed them for coach of the year for Kurt Miller, but, you know, coming into the season, I just did not see how this offense would produce this season. I, I think I even said at one point that they could be the worst offense in the league, you know, with the spacing issues, playing two centers, alongside, you know, not really having any real perimeter creators and and two of those perimeter players being pretty actively like inefficient starters uh, in Bonner and Jasmine Thomas and January being more of like, you know, 
decent efficiency individually, but just kind of kills you with record scratches, doesn't take enough shots, passes up some open looks, and has a pretty low usage for a starter. But instead, they managed to be, you know, number three in offense. They were a top four offense, you know, despite being middle of the pack and some pretty important indicators, you know, they made it work somehow. You know, the thing that I find funny about that is none of the things that you said right right then and there ended up being wrong. You know, I mean, they still don't have many perimeter creators. They still don't have much floor spacing. They still don't have much of a transition game. Um, they were pretty bad at taking care of the basketball. And yet they were not this horrendous offense. So how do they do it? And I think that that one thing that you had mentioned about them not being able to take care of the basketball, like that, that I think is the most surprising element of them still being able to have a good offense. Because if you, yeah. if you just kind of lay it out like, okay, you're really going to grind it down. You're going to play at this super slow tempo you're going to play within the paint and and get everything in front of the rim and play through your two centers and and really take care of the ball like okay that sort of I mean it's not my preferred style of basketball but it there's at least like a a competent theory there even if it's not one we prefer right but they were one of the worst turnover offenses in the league this season and they never got out in transition like you said and, and that's kind of where you can get the most efficient looks is out in the open court but they were able to hit the threes that they took. You know, they were uh, fourth in the league in three-point percentage. Maybe some unsustainable shooting in, in some places. Jasmine Thomas shot 40% from three. Dewana Bonner started the season pretty hot. Heidemann in January both had pretty good shooting seasons by their standards. But really, it was just getting to the free throw line and dominating the offensive boards and, and getting those extra possessions. All those factors that you just mentioned— that is how you win MVPs and coaches of the year. I mean, I think the the proof is in the pudding, as I said, uh, for both John Cole Jones's MVP case and Kurt Miller's coach of the year case. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really crazy to look at, you know, for all the limitations the Sun team had. And it's not like they were masking them. It's like they were just playing better than their, their, their strengths were just simply stronger than their weaknesses were weak. You know, I mean, I don't think there's much else to say there. Do you have any anything else to add to this? Well, just that they were playing through their two centers and both of those two centers, you know, I think those Bree Jones was, you know, relegated in her role a little bit in the playoffs or, or a lot of bit in the playoffs. Um, but she was, you know, their second kind of go-to player offensively and both John Quell and Bree Jones, you know, 61% true shooting as sort of their there too. I mean, Dewana Bonner probably had the ball in her hands more, but Jones was certainly their second best offensive player this season. Brianna Jones, I mean, and you know that that's what really drove them to success. One thing I wanted to, to add to that was I remember specifically hating the idea of playing Brianna Jones and John Cole Jones together. I thought it was stupid. I thought I remember using the phrase something along these lines: displacing your best player, which was John Cole Jones. Um, in order to accommodate a an inferior player in Brianna Jones. And they both had career seasons, so that shows you how much I know. Moving on, uh, this was a player I wanted to bring up. I think it was actually, uh, quote-unquote, requested by a listener. I, I wasn't going to bring it up, but um, one of our faithful well, listeners, you know, yeah, you know who you are, uh, said, what about Tina Charles? And I replied, oh, I agree. What about Tina Charles, Stephen? Well, Tina Charles, uh, a player I maybe I was lower on than you were coming into this season, a player who we thought would, you know, have to see a different role this year if Washington was going to make some noise, if Tina Charles is going to assimilate herself within, you know, what Mike Tebow wanted to do and their other 
great bigs that they have on the roster. You know, pretty much, I guess, in theory, four of their five best players were, were going to get time either at power forward or center. So, and, and Tina Charles coming off a career worst year the last time we saw her, which was, you know, not even 2020, but 2019 on just a, a dreadful Liberty team with a dreadful offense uh, and some dreadful shot selection. Um, but Tina Charles, you know, was pretty good. She was pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Uh, you know, part of the um, research, if you want to call it that, not not really research, preparation for this episode was us listening uh, on listening to the old uh, older episodes to see what we said, so we can see what we said that was incorrect. Um, very painful exercise for me because I hate listening to myself speak, but that's that's the way the cookie crumbles sometimes. It's a painful exercise for anyone listening. To yeah, this I yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Um, you 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 asked me. Will Tina Charles have a, a usage percentage under 28% this season? And I said, without hesitation, it will be under 28%. Well, that was a little incorrect. She had a career-high 32.3 usage percentage, which is the highest in the WNBA. And, and as we noted before, the highest uh, in league history among any players not named Angel McCautry. Yeah, so if, if, if the point of this episode is to uh, talk about us being wrong, that was wrong, Eric. That was, that was, that was bad. I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Charles, it wasn't transformational basketball, but I think she she did a lot of things to prove that you know she's still a very very good player in this league and she still is capable of carrying an offense. Whether or not you want to extend that to you know carrying a really good offense or, or carrying a team to playoff contention, one thing I will say is that this team looked a lot different than I think we thought it would. Unfortunately, Landon Deladon did not have uh, the health that we were expecting. You know, Emma Miesemann never showed up. Uh, Alicia Clark injured herself before the season began, so that's all very unfortunate. But um, yeah, Tina Charles, better than I expected. I think better than you expected. So uh, De- you were definitely, wrong. definitely better than I expected. Um, yeah, but I was a little higher on her than you. I think. I think you know ultimately, kind of the biggest doubts for me kind of came in whether she would be able to sort of adjust her game to kind of succeed around other high usage players. You know, lower her usage a little bit play solid defense and ultimately like like you're saying you know the circumstances of the 2021 mystics I, I don't think they really answered those questions one way or the other so we got to just kind of see the same old tina charles who who was great and who scored a lot of points and did it on you know decent efficiency among the highest efficiency of, of her career you know she's she was at 53 percent true shooting she's hit that mark you know four times out of her i don't know 12 or so seasons so it, it wasn't you know, like a crazy improvement uh, in terms of what we have seen at some point. She was at three threes per 36 minutes in 2018, up to five and a half last year. So we saw shifts more so than like, like you were saying, like a transformation, but we we still didn't kind of, and again, she was more effective than I thought she was going to be for sure. But we didn't kind of see like the Tina Charles sort of fitting in to that that lower role with a lot more kind of offensive talent around her so it's not that we know that she can't it's just that we didn't even really see the opportunity for her to be able to okay so we're calling maybe a little bit of a mulligan on that one just just wanted to bring it up moving right along here uh another center uh of elite caliber that we wanted to talk about Brittany Griner yeah and I don't think either one of us really doubted what type of player like the best version of Brittany Griner could be it's just would we ever see that consistently over the course of not only a regular season but also the playoffs and we had discussed over the course of the season like whether Brittany Griner could be the best player on on a finals team and what 
version of her we would see defensively, you know, a player, you know, erroneously picked for some all defense teams and stuff like that. And a year over year preseason choice for MVP for, for so many. Uh, and I thought like this was the season where we would just kind of maybe leave that in the past and, and quite the opposite, right? We got maybe the best season of her career this year. I would say it's the best season of her career, maybe not defensively, but just overall as a player. One thing I will say is that, you know, I've been pretty critical of her rebounding. The rebounding was better. It, it wasn't like where I think it, where I think it should be for a player of her size, but it was noticeably better. Um, and just, just the level, especially on the offensive end. Yes. Yes. I mean, she's still six foot nine. I still want to see her hit the glass even harder than she did. But I mean, let's be honest. This is the best player on a team that went to the WNBA finals. And I, before the season, I wasn't so sure if, if that was in Brittany Griner's bag, if, if, if you want to put it that way, she was just John Cole Jones won MVP this past season, but Brittany Griner in the playoffs was the best player in the world. In my opinion, teams had no answer for her. The, any adjustments they made to Griner, at least individually as an offensive player were, were basically fruitless. I mean, like we said before, you either you, you double her and she's just going to find the open, the open player. It's, it's, it's no problem for her now. She just showed a level of maturity, both on the court. Well, actually, I shouldn't say off the court because that's not we're not privy to that. But uh, a level of maturity on the court where she she just didn't seem to commit as many silly fouls on defense. Um, she seemed to be consistently engaged on offense, and a consistently engaged Brittany Griner on offense is going to carry the Mercury to many many wins. And I think really the way that she handled the Vegas series uh, in particular, where you know, okay, you're you're gonna you know, fruitlessly double me every time to make sure I don't take the shot. Okay, then play three on four against the rest of the team, you know, uh, had some kind of lower usage games there as they sort of pretty much sent a hard double every time she uh, she touched the ball with players that were not really even tall enough to kind of contest when she would pass out of that. So she was fine just sort of making those plays from the low block uh, and, and getting other players involved uh, without really you know, forcing the issue too much, but then kind of taking over when, when she got her better looks. And then, you know, defensively, nothing really kind of sticks out statistically. And it's not even like this team was good defensively. But anecdotally, I just felt like the effort was more consistent. The bad reach falls late in the game when you already have four or five. You know, those I, I didn't see as much this year. And she was the best player, like you said, arguably in the regular season and certainly in the postseason. I think... The one way to summarize how wrong I was about Brittany Griner was looking back on those best center in the league debates, which is a fun debate to have because it seems like you could, you could get a different answer at any given time asking any 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 person, basically. Um, it's, it's between Griner, Cambage, Wilson, if you consider her a center. I, I don't think we did for the purpose of that exercise. Jonquil Jones and Sylvia Fowles. I think right now it's no question it's, it's Brittany Griner. Like I said, John Quill Jones is doing some amazing things. Particularly, did you see that stat line recently in uh, in uh, Eurobasket qualifiers? She put up, I think it was 44 points and 24 rebounds. Like, she heard us. She was saying, okay, you know, no, I'm still the best center. I won MVP. I'm still the best center in the league. But Brittany Griner definitely gave herself a little bit of a boost in those discussions, I think. Want to move on to uh, something that we were perhaps overly positive on? Yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, so this one is, is a mea culpa for me. Uh, I had Jordan Canada number nine in our 25 under 25 prospect rankings. And looking back, you know, that that was just insane, right? Uh, I got some of the players that I ranked below Jordan Canada in that exercise. Azura Stevens, Bree oh, Turner, no. 
Maisha Hines-Allen, Bree Jones, Marina Mabry, some pretty good players that I think undoubtedly you you would take just about all those players over Jordan Canada in a heartbeat, right? I would. I would. Without much of a thought, I would take over Jordan Canada. And to your to your defense, I'll, I'll, I'll come to your aid a little bit here. Jordan Canada at the time, I think, had a pretty good case for being a a good player um, in evaluating just particularly because of her defense and also um, transition frequency. But those numbers kind of took a dive this past season. And when a player like that who has very specific and, should I say, glaring weaknesses, when they aren't able to play to their strengths like that, those weaknesses just become all the more apparent, and particularly in Jordan Canada's case. Yeah, I mean, obviously she has the shooting limitations well documented, but she also just can't finish around the rim, particularly in the half court. You know, she was in the 25th percentile in transition, 25th percentile in half court offense, 15th percentile around the rim in the half court. She had nine finishes in 29 games in the restricted area in the half court, four of them against the the sorry Liberty defense, but that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Overall, you know, 37th percentile true shooting. She was below 50%, below 40% in effective field goal percentage. We saw pretty drastic dips in her assists per 36 minutes, her steals per 36 minutes, her overall two-point shooting percentage, again, barely over 40% there. So we just didn't really get the good part of Jordan Canada. And I think even more so than all those individual numbers, uh, for me, is it's really telling that even when like the Jewel Lloyd, Brianna Stewart combination, like two pretty incandescent players, uh, even when those two were on the floor sharing the, the court with Jordan Canada, the team couldn't score at all, right? So it, she was really just a suffocating presence for them offensively. A 101 offensive rating, which is not terrible. But again, those two overall had a 107 offensive rating and 108 with uh, with Bird um, rather than Canada. Uh, well, I shouldn't say rather than because some of those lineups include Canada as well. It's like you look at a player of her archetype and she's five foot five, five foot six, whatever you want to call it. Um, she can't shoot, has never been able to. Um, and she's also a very poor finisher. So what exactly like like guards like guards of that archetype typically do not last very long in the WNBA. Canada has, but I'm kind of concerned about her future now because, like I always say, the league is getting more and more talent every year, and with Canada kind of underperforming this year on a team that had higher expectations than than what they finished in in, in the postseason, I have to wonder if, if Seattle, you know, even though you know Suber's retirement is impending, whether it be this coming year or the next, uh, I have to wonder if, if the Storm are, are fully comfortable with Canada running the point full-time. Yeah, and in her defense, she was in the 97th percentile last year in assist-to-turnover rate. When you add in her passing, you know, she was above the 60th percentile, both in transition in the half court, so that that's including assists uh, and turnovers as well. So again, not, not turning it over a ton for her. I, I do think she's a value-added passer, you know, not a player that's just, I don't know, just you know, kind of getting the, the, the cheap assists that sometimes you'll find uh, scouring the WNBA. Down. Just lobbing the ball around the perimeter yeah, to all WNBA yeah, players. Of, yeah, those stationary kind of top of the key passes. She's doing, you know, more more value than that. Um, but, you know, she'll she'll have graduated off the 25 under 25 this year by the time we do it, I guess, uh, I don't know, whenever we do it. But she would have been significantly lower had she not. Okay, let's let's quickly stay on, on, on the topic of the Seattle Storm, at least – somewhat on the topic of the Seattle Storm. Uh, Candice Dupree, I, I just wanted to mention this because um, I don't think we were that wrong 
but I think we were wrong about some part of it. Uh, I don't think either of us liked the Dupree signing. We kind of talked ourselves into it after looking at it a little bit more. Uh, that signing didn't work out. And specifically, I was listening to this throw episode, and I said, offensively, I think the fit is going to be good. Uh, the fit was not good. Offensively, defensively, anywhere on the court. Yeah, we were initially, and uh, I think you would listen to these episodes, so so maybe I'm misremembering, but I think we both hated it, you know, immediately when it was announced. Yeah. And, and over time, we kind of, like you said, talked ourselves into it, like, okay, maybe this can work. You know, she'll be the fifth option. Um, she can operate sort of as a play finisher, you know, 2014 Mercury style, you know, kind of fifth best starter type. Um, but she just wasn't really one. She she wasn't utilized as the play finisher, whether because she wanted to do more or the offense wasn't setting her up that way. And also she wasn't really converting those opportunities. You know, when you are so reliant on 15 to 20 foot twos, you really got to hit him at a high clip to kind of justify that role in an offense and I think it was you know a little bit too much in the post she was a terrible pick and roll player a little bit too much self-creation and again just didn't hit the jump shots and ultimately you know I think more than anything it was the the defense that kind of uh, led her to stop getting minutes and ultimately depart from the storm but you know offensively was not quite this the level uh, of our sort of optimistic view that when we kind of talked ourselves into it and the thing is you talk about you know you have to be a good mid-range jump shooter in order to be taking those shots consistently historically dupree has been like one of the best in the business and one of the most consistent in the business for many 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 years so i think that's part of what surprised me but looking back on it in hindsight i i, I can't help but wonder if candace dupree is just toast now i mean i, I think her wma cure is is in its twilight and it's a shame that it didn't work out on, on a good team but i mean hey she made it clear that she signed there because she wanted to win and she wanted money. So, I mean, uh, a player of that caliber, I don't think you can be too, too picky about or too picky and choosy about that. Uh, it just didn't work out for either party. Let's swing back into the positive direction. A player that I was quite low on, I'll say, uh, not only coming into the season, but for a large part of the season, you know, why, why is Dallas kind of playing Moriah Jefferson as much as they are? I think we were both in agreement that Jefferson should be the third guard on this team. Maybe not even yes. the ro- in the rotation, you know, definitely not starting, you know, prioritize Mabry and Harris over Mariah Jefferson, but she, she was fine. You know, she, I, I wouldn't say she was amazing. There are definite holes in her game, age 27 in 2021, a, a younger team with a roster kind of figuring out, you know, what, what their second year play, what they have in their second and third year players, um, but Vicky Johnson, you know, publicly stated pretty early on, if memory serves me correct, that Mariah Jefferson was going to be the point guard. And she played well enough to at least kind of make this mea culpa list in terms of, you know, three and a half threes per 36 minutes is still pretty low for a starting perimeter, uh, you know, point guard type player. Uh, she did make uh, an exceedingly high number of them for what it's worth, uh, driving up her effective field goal number to a pretty respectable rate much better than her true shooting because she still never gets to the line. She played 500 minutes this season and attempted five free throw attempts as a starting point guard. That That's kind of rough, but still, nevertheless, you know, I still don't think she's as good a player as Marina Mabry. Uh, and I think, you know, the on-off numbers really bear that out. But for sure, she's, you know, 
a rotation caliber player and one that, you know, she she earned her spot playing for this team. She definitely outplayed Ty Harris, who really didn't, I think, make any kind of an impact this season one yeah. way or the other. The usage is is a lot lower than you would, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to find another starting point guard lower than 17% usage. I think Natasha Cloud was the only player kind of really in that neighborhood, but she she had a nice season. And this this discussion kind of hurts for me to, to to have because I was really really high on Jefferson when she first came into the league. She had a really exciting uh, freshman season, freshman season, rookie season, um, and then the injuries just started piling up and up and up. And then you saw the Moriah Jefferson of 2020, who many figured, okay, she's she's going to lose her job to Ty Harris, and that did not happen at all. I don't think Jefferson she didn't really do a heck of a lot to snatch that starting job from Tyasha Harris. I think Ty Harris just didn't take it. But to like like you said to her credit, she hit 46% of her three-pointers. That's pretty darn good. Even though she put basically no pressure at all on the rim, Jefferson was good enough. And that's um, got to be the most surprising part about it, right? Yeah, I'm, she, she was yeah, no pressure on the rim whatsoever. I mean, my goodness, looking at these numbers. But she was she was competent, you know. I I think it was she did her her, her duty. I, I don't think she's ever going to return to the player that she was as a rookie, which is, is is very very unfortunate. But she fended off Ty Harris as, as, as this season in the um the starting point guard battle for the Dallas Wings. Although I don't at this point, I mean I don't know. Would you rather have Jefferson or or Harris or neither? I mean it's pretty clear that Marina Mabry is is their second best guard, right? I mean, it kind of goes against the spirit of the conversation, but I still think I would rather have Harris for the next, you know, three years or so. Okay, but, yeah, I agree. I mean, you know, I might rather have Dana Evans than any of them. But, but with that being said, I think we should uh, move on to a topic that is near and dear to the WNBA champion Chicago Sky, uh, and that would be their first-round draft pick, Shyla Heal. Eric, how are you feeling about Shyla Heal on draft <laughs> Okay, uh, I really, really liked the pick. Maybe I was trying to chalk myself into it as a Sky fan, but I thought the pick was a decent one. Because, I mean, if you look at this, let's look at what the Sky needed at the time. They very clearly needed a backup point guard, as has been the case for many years now. Um, and there were several in the draft that they could have chosen from. I think, you know, Dana Evans, Keanu Williams. Shiley Hill was maybe kind of the, the wild card pick because she was an international player who many... American fans, myself included, in all of our ignorance, had not watched. We just simply hadn't seen enough of her. I like the pick because she both filled in, she filled in position of need, obviously, and she already had that professional experience playing overseas and playing in international competitions. So I thought that he would be able to come in and provide that solid 8 to 10 minutes of backup point guard play right away. As it turned out, she was more or less unplayable, unfortunately. Uh, saw very quickly that... Defenses, you know, she, she couldn't handle ball pressure at all. I mean, if, if you look at, I mean, this is very small sample size, so take it for what it's worth, but these numbers are hilariously bad. 48.4% turnover rate, 37.6% um, true shooting. So she couldn't take care of the ball and she couldn't score the ball. I, I mean, she went one for eight from the field, I'm pretty sure. This yeah, season, I know. mean, very, very small sample size, but yeah. Um, negative 13.4 PER, like, didn't even know that like, that shouldn't be possible, but That's it bad. happened. Um, and this guy, this guy scored 84.1 points per hundred possessions with her on the floor. So it was all bad. It was all very, very bad. Now, in fairness to Shyla Hill, like I said, the sample size was extremely small for those stats. Uh, and she, she didn't get a fair shake. 
You know, as a 19-year-old international player coming into the WNBA, James Wade admitted this. He said, you know, we hope to have, you know, the situation played out differently than what we expected because they were without Candace Parker, they were without Stephanie Dolson, they were without Allie Quigley. Those are three pretty darn good offensive players who Heal was was lacking. You know, she was kind of thrown into the fire with a very limited offensive roster around her. And I think, you know, to be fair, also, I think the jury is still very much out on whether she can be an effective WNBA player. It's not like she's just done. It, it, it really sucks the way that it, that it played out for her. I think the fact of the matter is that, you know, Chicago had a very specific goal this season, which is to win a championship and a very small window in which to achieve that goal. And, you know, the, the, the circumstances on the roster, basically, they didn't fit where Hill was as a player at that time. And they had to just cut bait and say, hey, you know, we're on this very bad losing streak. We need help. We need it now. This player is not getting it done for us. So as as it was unfair to heal as a player, but yeah, I mean, she was she was not good at all. I, I was expecting much, 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 much more from Shiloh Hill. Yeah, I wonder what it would have looked like, you know, with a healthy Candace Parker and Allie Quigley over those first few games, because I mean, it was pretty much, you know, right away that those those players went out and it was kind of the same old, okay, things are... I mean, maybe even worse than previous seasons, you know, uh, for the the non-Vandersloot minutes when it was kind of Shyla Heels' turn to to run the show. Um, And I, you know, in my very limited film evaluation of Shyla Heel, believed in her as a regular season contributor for this team. Like, I I liked her shooting. I liked that she was not only a capable three-point shooter, but one with pretty extended range. I believed in her ability as, you know, a two-level scorer, at least someone who could, you know, shoot the three and score in the mid-range, kind of pull up in the pick and roll. I thought her feel in the pick and roll for someone her age and playing professionally, like you had mentioned, was pretty good. You know, I didn't think she would be a plus defender at this level, but I thought she would at least be able to make some plays defensively, jumping the passing lanes and, and digging down into the post. And none of that stuff mattered, really, because she couldn't really dribble or pass consistently without turning it over. And, I mean, it's not even that she had more turnovers than assists, uh, a three to one turnover to assist ratio, but she had more turnovers than shot attempts, Eric. That Man. is, uh, an ins- I wonder if any other player has ever done that. Uh, I didn't look it up, but I mean, again, like you said, she was given 30 minutes of playing time. And I don't think that we've seen the last of Shyla Heal in the WNBA. And it really was kind of worst case scenario in terms of how you could sort of ease a 19 year old player into a team with championship expectations but James Wade had to kind of cut bait when they did uh, feeling some pressure of the season sort of spiraling away things maybe look different with some of that sort of release valve passing in Dolson and Parker and Quigley who can you know also play make a little bit with the ball in her hands but that wasn't the case and you know after that trade for whatever reason, you know, Dallas decided it wasn't even really keeping worth keeping her on roster. Uh, we'll, we'll see kind of how that turns out long term. But for now, she's she's not a WNBA player. No, and, and, and full full disclosure, I, I am I'm rooting for Shiloh Hill because, in all honesty, like like I, like I said, it really really sucks how that all went down. Um, of course, the winning the championship uh, makes it all better for Sky fans. But uh, I would like to see Shiloh Hill get another shot in the WNBA because she just very very clearly wasn't physically ready for it. Let me jump ahead quick to one that, again, is more on the positive side here. Um, and that is a player that, again, I did not really even believe was a, a WNBA rotation caliber player in Monique Billings, who 
I thought had a really solid season for an otherwise, you know, disappointing Atlanta dream team. Um, but my evaluation of Monique Billings through her first three seasons was a player who had one elite skill in the WNBA and was below average or worse at pretty much every other skill required by a WNBA big. Too small to be a five, too paint bound to be a four, too poor of a finisher to really play either position, too reliant on mid-rangers. And I think, you know, what we saw in granted kind of limited minutes for when Atlanta wanted to play a little bit smaller with Billings and Bradford at the four and five is that Billings can can really kind of give you something defensively in the right identity. Yeah, and that's that's something I, I will give interim head coach Mike Peterson credit for. You know, he he obviously inherited a uh, interesting, or rather interesting situation there in Atlanta. But that that small ball lineup you speak of, and that they actually closed games with uh, on several occasions, it had mixed results. But I I, I saw the vision. You know, I, I think it, it benefited both Bradford and Billings as players because you're right. You know, she did. I don't think Billings is is, is a great defensive player, but it, it really put her in a position for her to succeed. And I think that's good coaching. But yeah, Billings, she took advantage of that for sure. And she was hitting uh, hitting those mid-range jumpers she likes to take at a better clip than she had in the past as well. Yeah, she got up to 50% on her two-point scoring, you know, still kind of below average in terms of her true shooting, but for, for her position, I should say, but 62nd percentile league-wide. One other thing that I think helped her kind of sustain offensively was that she was able to get out and transition more. And that's something that we've mostly seen increase year over year for Billing is, is getting out. She had a 16.8% transition frequency this year, which was a career high up from 13% last year and 1.3 points per possession in transition as opposed to, uh, you know, about 0.85 points in the half court. So finally cracking 60% shooting in the restricted area, I think getting out in transition helped that. So it's nice to see her hit some more of her jump shots, you know, not a shot you kind of want the offense to end up in too much, but she was uh, really a poor shooter over her last couple of seasons, kind of relying on that, that mid range too. And, you know, the, the finishing increases. And if you're playing a conservative style defensively, you know, I, th- I still think she might have a hard time being effective, but we, we kind of at least saw an idea of, of what could really get out in the floor, kind of hound the guards, trap, pressure uh monique billings has proved she can kind of hang in that scheme and you know that that in itself isn't very surprising to me we we knew right away when she came into the league that she is an elite athlete and she is going to be out able to outrun virtually every other player at her position um but we didn't really see many of those lineups with her at the five so my my question is you know this atlanta team obviously has a lot going on this offseason a lot of things to address Will they be okay with, you know, putting Monique Billings out there at center again, even if for, you know, like limited minutes? Because I don't think it's ideal, but, you know, you've got Elizabeth Williams, who's an unrestricted free agent, you know, Cheyenne Parker, who's expecting her first child. Congratulations to her. You know, are are they going to bring Tiana Hawkins back? And I think if if there is a a front court player on this team who proved that she's worthy of another look, it's Monique Billings. Yeah, and it's, you know, definitely going to be, I think it's like a, it's a situational look, right? Because going with Monique Billings against... It has to be Brittany Griner or Sylvia Fowles. It's just not really going to work out for you. But if you run it, you know, 10 minutes a game against second units or against, you know, last year's Liberty team who didn't kind of have that center that could really take advantage of, you know, a Monique Billings at the five. 
Um, so it's it's definitely not you know something that that you're going to do against the very best teams and the very best players all the time. But it's something that can kind of uh, get teams out of their comfort zone and and you know make some good things happen for the Dream or, or whoever you know Billings ends up playing for. Okay, moving on. Um, I had a couple of of immediate. Uh, post-draft reactions that I wanted to revisit here. Um, now, before I, I talk about these players, I just want to say it's, you know, one year is is largely still too, way too early to make a judgment about any WNBA draftee, particularly in a class where you thought, okay, this is not a very strong draft class. Some of these players are projects. They may need a little more time to work out. But um, the one player I was... And, and also, to... particularly when, you know, None of these players were playing heavy minutes, right? Right, right. It, it's 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 very difficult to evaluate these things when they're all when they're all playing like seven eight minutes a game, you know, on, on low usage. So it's like, well, how, how much evidence do we really have to work with here? But one player I was particularly uh, I was pleasantly surprised by was Dee Dee Richards in New York. Uh, I did not like this pick for them at all. I, I actually wasn't high on, on Richards as a prospect, period, because. At Baylor, she not only could she not shoot, she just flat out didn't shoot. And that's not great for a perimeter player in the WNBA, at least in this day and age. You know, you got to be really, really good on the defensive end of the floor, which Richards is, to be fair, but at basically every other phase of the game, if you're going to make up for just literally not shooting the basketball. Um, and, and also she, that that archetype of not taking perimeter shots is usually at least reserved for, you know, like a Jordan candidate type who has the ball in their hands a lot. And, right. and Richards, you know, did some of that in college, but certainly wasn't expected to do that at this level. Right. And, okay, we can say circumstances. You know, Asia Durr was out again. Uh, Marino Hannes was not with the team again. So Richards, you know, she, she played a little bit of uh, a wing and a little bit of point for the Liberty. But, I mean, she hit... 45.5% of her three-point attempts, 10 of 22. The sample wasn't huge, and granted, she wasn't really being guarded out there because defenses were doing what I expected them to do, which is just not guard D.D. Richards. But to her credit, she took them, and she knocked down a fair amount of them. So that's that's pretty good. You know, she was she carved out a decent role for herself and made the all-rookie team. So, you know, congratulations to D.D. I hope she can keep it up because her story is a, is a really cool one. Anything you wanted to add to that, or should I go on? No, I'm, I'm going to save my thoughts on this as we uh, dive into these players next week. Okay, okay. Um, on the opposite end, I was really, really high on Arella Garantes heading into the draft. I thought it was very strange that she fell as, as far as she did to the LA Sparks in the second round because I had her actually as uh, a second-tier prospect. For comparison, I had Dee Dee Richards as a ninth-tier prospect. Oh, my God, that's horrible. <laughs> Looking back on that, oh, my God, not good. I thought Garantes would be would have an impact immediately, an, a positive impact immediately, because she has she had she came in with the WNBA body, WNBA strength, and she'd just be able to put the ball on the hoop in many different ways. She didn't really do much to justify that as a rookie. You know, she got she got some playing time. I want to say she was either you know fifth or sixth in, in in minutes played among rookies, but that for this rookie class is not a very high bar. And in her time on the court, she just wasn't very effective, right? I mean, she averaged three and a half points a game on 37.1% true shooting percentage. Neither figure impressive at all. And the team was pretty bad. LA Sparks, not 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 great. So I have to wonder, like, it was, was she playing just because the team was, it, she was putting up bad stats on a bad team. So not really that impressive to me was was grantes did she do anything to that really stood out to you or 
No, not particularly. Um, we'll, we'll get into it a little bit more next week as we do a, a rookie wing deep dive. But the that I think is true. The the most glaring element of Garantis' game, I, I think, was her struggles in the paint, where it was really really tough go for for Arella Garantis. Um, and I mean, there just wasn't really, I think, a thing that you could sort of hang your hat on for Garantis and say, well, at least blank. But we'll see. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it next week. Yeah, and, and, and to, to be fair, uh, finishing in the paint is is a struggle for a lot of rookies. A, a lot of rookie wing players and, and guards in particular as they get used to the strength and the physicality and the speed of the WNBA game. But bottom line is I expected her to be an immediate contributor because of her skill. And uh, yeah, wasn't really happening. All right, last one I have here is uh, Sammy Whitcomb, a player that I, I was initially pretty high on the signing to be sure, but... Then when everything kind of, uh, you know, the off, the rest of the offseason developed, I should say, the Liberty missing Durr and missing Johannes, uh, I was feeling a, a little bit down that Whitcomb would be kind of shooting as a uh, as a starting guard when I kind of initially maybe thought she might be a sixth player, but she definitely proved her worth as a starter for this team. I think I had asked you in, in our Liberty preview, like, is she an above average starting guard? And I think the answer was, was resoundingly yes, at least for this past season uh I, I have my issues with maybe how she was utilized over the course of the season you know maybe a little bit too much of kind of that playmaking burden and not enough you know just playing off the ball where she was uh, a great three-point shooter and you know one of the most efficient uh scorers in the league this year probably the team's best defender over the course of the season easily that their best and most consistent uh outside shooter and it was pretty clear also like who you know as a season ticket holder for the liberty like who the floor general was who the coming presence on this team was um but even just from a basketball perspective like she definitely earned that starting spot in this team was one of their only kind of reliably positive players you know they had probably four or five maybe that you could point to as as definitely you know good players all season long she was probably maybe their their second or third best player over the course of the season if you count sort of you know how how much better they were with Howard back um, but even still I think you know outside of Benajelani like Whitcomb was probably their their best and most consistent player this season and you know I might take that a step further and say you know when Laney was having her struggles later in the season Whitcomb was still pretty good you know i mean she was like you said that's that's a good way of putting it she was a calming presence on the floor um because she just does a little bit of everything with the basketball you, you know obviously she's you can't leave her without the ball because she's gonna she's gonna knock down that corner three or the three from basically anywhere on the court but she does have some chops as a playmaker and she can get to the rim you know i was pleasantly surprised by how many um how many times she was able to kind of maneuver her way through the defense when I thought there was nothing there and she was still able to get to the rim and finish. And on a team that uh, handled ball pressure so poorly otherwise, Whitcomb was a, I don't know, you put it well, a calming presence on the court. So yeah, Sammy's dope. I'm, I'm excited to see what else she can do in New York as they as they improve as a team. And uh, yeah, very consistent player. Yeah. And you know, one last thing here, just, you know, how much they, they just had no shot in those couple of games that she missed with an ankle injury. Like they, no. they could not generate reliable offense. You know, they needed both her, her floor spacing off the ball and her uh, ball handling as sort of that, that kind of secondary playmaker uh, behind Benaja Laney, but which is worrisome if I'm looking at a Liberty as a fan, honestly. Yeah, it was uh, not a great season overall for the eighth seed, but um, anything else you wanted to add? No, I think I'm, I'm fi- I think I'm finished. Cool. That sounds great. Well, th- this was a fun exercise, I think. I'm, I'm glad we did this. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to 
support the show, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at DoubleDownWNBA, at E for Eric, at Trinkwald for myself. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, we'll be back next week with a rookie wings deep dive. All right. Thanks, everybody.